It's Friday, September 20th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. Today, millions around the world demanded action against the climate crisis. We'll tell you about the people who hit the streets for the global climate strike. Then, Kiribati. It's a country in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it's in a bit of a diplomatic love triangle with China and Taiwan. We'll give you the details. And finally, a fun fact to go along with your shot of Japanese whiskey. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by Uber. The most complicated story today is about the climate crisis. Today, millions of people around the world went on strike to try to save the planet. In the U.S., there were more than 1,000 events across the country, and thousands more in over 150 other countries. While many in the U.S. were still asleep, 80,000 people in Sydney, Australia, kicked things off. We are not drowning! We are fighting! In Berlin, it was 100,000 people. We must do something now, not tomorrow, not in five years. There was even a climate march on the Pacific island of Tuvalu and a strike in Kabul, Afghanistan, where about 100 young protesters were protected by armed security forces. So today we're going to get into how this strike came about, what we heard at these climate strikes, and what it has to do with a big climate summit going down next week at the United Nations. The whole global climate strike movement is pretty grassroots. The idea for a school strike traces back to 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, who last year started skipping class every Friday, staking out the Swedish parliament, and promising to return until Sweden does more to limit global warming. Thunberg's Fridays for Future movement took off, and kids in other countries started their own climate strikes. The Fridays for Future movement has a pretty general message, not a concrete list of demands. Instead, it's about waking up the world to the issue of climate change and putting an end to business as usual. And that means what we heard at these strikes today changed from city to city. In one English town, dozens of people staged a die-in to highlight species extinction. In the Ivory Coast, people protested against a proposed new coal plant. Toonberry herself was in New York City, marching alongside thousands of people. In New York City, 1.1 million students in public schools were basically given a permission slip to skip class and attend the huge rally there, as long as their parents were down. These strikes were timed to take place right before the UN's big climate summit, which starts on Monday. So, what's happening there? The UN is throwing a big climate bash, one day before world leaders start their yearly UN General Assembly meetings. The problem with these meetings is it's hard to get everyone to focus on one thing. Hence, Monday's UN Climate Action Summit. Officials from 63 countries are scheduled to speak at the summit, which is just a fraction of the UN's 193 members. That's because UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres set some ground rules for this one. He told countries that if they don't stop building new coal power plants or reduce subsidies for fossil fuels, or pledge to hit net zero emissions by the year 2050, they're not getting an invite to Monday's meeting. Here's Guterres in a video promoting Monday's summit. We have the blueprints, the frameworks and the plans. What he needs is urgency, political will, and ambition. Turns out, some of the world's biggest powers failed the test. 
Australia and Japan have reportedly been told, your climate policies aren't good enough. The same reportedly goes for Brazil and Saudi Arabia. Another country that's been denied a speaking slot? The United States. The U.S. is kind of on the U.N.'s naughty list right now. The Trump administration is still promoting coal and continuing fossil fuel subsidies. President Trump even withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement, which basically every other country is still on board with. Helen Mountford is the vice president of climate and economics at the World Resources Institute, a research organization focused on the environment. I think the Secretary General has been absolutely right in saying, look, we want to have a dialogue amongst leaders. We want to know what leaders are doing. But to actually make it onto the stage, you really need to be doing something that's significant. You can't just come and sort of go through a laundry list of various small interventions or policies. We need real action and at scale. That said, the UN appears to have made some exceptions to its own rules. China and India are both building coal plants but they're reportedly set to speak on Monday anyway. So what's the chance we get anything more than talk on Monday? A lot of climate summits make for pretty bad TV. Most things play out off camera and in negotiating rooms, but Monday could be different and the political speeches might provide us some important details. Mountford says she'll be counting how many countries announce bolder emissions targets than the ones they signed off on in the Paris Agreement. She'll also be watching how much money countries pledge to something called the Green Climate Fund, which helps developing countries reduce greenhouse gas emissions and adapt to climate change. To be clear, closed-door climate meetings and decisions by businesses still matter, especially huge global businesses like Google and Amazon. Today, workers at those companies walked out and joined the strike. And actually yesterday, Amazon CEO made a big climate pledge. Remember how the UN wants countries to go net zero emissions by 2050? Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says, we'll do you one better. We'll hit net zero emissions by 2040. So what's the scam? Today's strikes have been called one of the largest ever climate events in history. And young people who will have to deal with the effects of climate change were front and center in organizing a global climate movement. Some journalists who've covered climate change for years are saying Friday's global strikes feel like something else. Especially the fact that so many young people are the ones pushing the issue. Which is a big deal, as people everywhere from Iceland to the Pacific Island country of Kiribati, which is in danger of getting wiped out thanks to global warming, went on strike today. Speaking of Kiribati, the tiny island country is making big headlines today for a totally different reason. More on that after the break. Looking for a ride? Try Uber. They continue to raise the bar to help make for safer journeys for everyone. For starters, they're introducing a brand new safety technology called RideCheck. Using GPS and smartphone sensors, RideCheck can detect if a trip goes unusually off course and check in to provide support. RideCheck is just one of the ways Uber is committed to going further on safety. Learn how they've created new tools and technology at uber.com safety. That's uber.com safety. For the second time this week, Taiwan lost another ally to China. This is related to some decades-old beef. Taiwan is an island off the southeast coast of China and has been independently governed since 1949. That's when some Chinese government officials fled and set up their own island shop. But Communist China says Taiwan isn't legit and considers it one of its provinces. 
this difference of opinion has led to a lot of tension over the years. Though things have eased up somewhat, both governments won't have diplomatic ties with any country if it's pledged support to the other. Like the U.S. Back in 1979, the U.S. took China's side. The government of the United States of America acknowledges the Chinese position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of China. President Jimmy Carter cut all diplomatic relations with Taiwan. But a few months later, Congress said they still might defend Taiwan if China attacks. So we still kind of maintain ties with both. It's a policy the U.S. calls strategic ambiguity. At the beginning of this week, 17 countries officially recognized Taiwan. Then on Monday, the Solomon Islands decided to switch and have diplomatic ties with China. And today, Kiribati jumped ship too. So what happened? Taiwan's current president is very much in favor of Taiwan's self-rule. And since she was inaugurated, China's been working to take away Taiwan's power in the region. Since 2016, seven countries that had been on Taiwan's side have switched allegiances to China. This time, Taiwan says it's because China lured them away with some shiny new airplanes. Apparently, Kiribati asked Taiwan for some money to buy airplanes. Taiwan offered a loan, but Kiribati wanted a donation. Next thing Taiwan knew, China had promised to give Kiribati the money for airplanes and ferries. So Kiribati said, thanks, new friend. And Taiwan said, you're dead to us. What does this mean now? Taiwan told Kiribati, we're leaving, and closed its embassy. And this is happening at a crucial time because Taiwan's presidential elections are coming up in January. Like we said, the current president is very in favor of Taiwan having autonomy, separate from China. Her opponent wants Taiwan to get closer to China. And even though the U.S. officially took China's side over Taiwan's back in the 70s, the news this week is making the U.S. nervous. Because if China is shoring up support by picking off these Pacific Island nations away from Taiwan, then the U.S. has to compete with China even more for influence in the region. The U.S. is responding by giving the cold shoulder to countries who've ditched Taiwan for China. This week, Vice President Mike Pence actually canceled a meeting with the leader of the Solomon Islands after they switched sides. Whether that'll keep other countries from making the same call is still TBD. The results of Israel's election are still up in the air. Remember, on Monday, we told you all about the parliamentary elections there on Tuesday. It was the second time voters in Israel hit the polls in less than six months. Three days later, we still don't know who the prime minister is supposed to be. With almost all of the votes tallied, it looks like the blue and white party, led by former military chief Benny Gantz, is going to have a few more seats in parliament than the Likud party which is led by current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Problem is, Gantz's party doesn't have enough seats to govern by themselves. So they'd have to form a coalition with another party, or multiple parties, to actually have control. Gantz says he's not willing to work with Netanyahu, which means he won't team up with the Likud. If he can't get some other parties in line, Israel might have to have a third election. That's a lot of election day bake sales.
Before we go today, we've got a fun fact coming to you from Japan. Sort of. So recently, Japanese whiskey has been all the rage. A two-ounce shot of one brand will set you back over 500 bucks. But turns out that coveted libation might not necessarily be made in Japan. Because the production regulations in Japan are fairly loose. Whereas bourbon has to be made in the U.S. to be called bourbon, and scotch has to be made in Scotland, for Japan, most of what's bottled is imported from other places like Canada or Scotland. And it can still be called Japanese whiskey, even if it's an international blend. Oh, and fun fact, for those who are sticklers for spelling, if your whiskey is from Scotland or Japan, lose the E in whiskey. But if it's Irish, leave the E in. It's sort of a thing. Cheers to the weekend. And that's all for Skim This. Thank you so much for listening this week, and we'd love for you to rate and review us online. A lot of news happens over the weekend, so to catch up first thing on Monday, sign up for our morning newsletter, The Daily Skim, at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox. <laughs>